Vinny and uh, Darren are always rushing to be the first to serve, and I am so grateful for their heart um, and their willingness that I get to double fist the waters today. So, uh, seriously though, how about just a little bit of applause for the guys that keep us in the coffee all morning, right? Right, they deserve some honor. Um, literally, they deserve some honor for that. So, uh, We're in uh, Luke chapter 10. If you've uh, been following us and been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we're, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke for quite some time, uh, but just in the last month or so, been in Luke 10. So I want to invite you there. You can get there either in a Bible that's in your seat or on your phone through our app. Um, however you choose, if you have your own Bible, that's great. But uh, we'll be reading from Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, uh, to begin with. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this uh, little portion here at the end of chapter 10, it, it stands in at least seeming opposition to the parable of the Good Samaritan that we talked about last week. And when I say seeming, because I, wanna, I want us to be reminded what the purpose of the Good Samaritan was last week. Um, remember that the parable of the Good Samaritan was uh, not about what we should do to our neighbor. The, the purpose of the parable was to define for us who the neighbor is. And remember, the teacher of the law that Jesus interacted with uh, from our scripture last week answered, all, answered the question right. You know, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And intimately and intricately involved, cannot be separated from, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the what to do is not the question, right? Love God, love others, love your neighbor. The, the question that the parable sought to explain was, okay, well then who is my neighbor? And that's the question that the teacher asked and then Jesus 
went about answering. And uh, so the question really set out, or set out to uh, say, who is it that I'm going to love? Who, what, what, kind of, what kind of person is it that's going to receive love? That's going to receive mercy? In the same way that I love the Lord, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor, like, okay, then who is my neighbor going to be? And what Jesus used was the relationship not between a religious person and a Jew, but between a Jew and a Samaritan who were, for all intents and purposes, um, considered each other to be wicked and cursed and evil and dirty. And so we might answer the question, who is it that is deserving of love, that is deserving of mercy. And what Jesus says is, even the people that you would consider to be the most unworthy, even the people that you would consider to be wicked and cursed and evil, that's your neighbor. So when we come into this passage um, at the end of Luke chapter 10, which talks a lot about um, the attitude of Martha and her, her busyness around an event. I want to I just keep us focused on the, uh, where there is tension between the two and where there is not. So what, what is the situation here? in the, the portion about Mary and Martha, where we are today. Uh, well, uh, Luke, Luke describes the situ- situation for us. He says that Jesus and his disciples, uh, traveling through the area, they visit the home of Martha and Mary, who are sisters. And uh, while Martha is uh, busy in the kitchen, I would presume, making preparations for the guests, like making sure that they are well uh, taken care of, Mary uh, sits at the feet of Jesus, uh, enthralled with what he is saying, listening intently to his teaching. Now, frustrated with the situation, uh, probably frustrated with, very obviously frustrated with her sister, Martha takes it out, takes her frustration and her anger out, not on Mary, but on who? On Jesus, right? And, and she goes to him, and, and she has a request to, to whip. Hey, Jesus, will you, will you whip my sister into shape here? Like, like kick her in the can. Let's get her, get her moving here to what, she, to what she should be doing. Now, you would think that at the request of Martha, Jesus would turn his attention to Mary, right? That's what Mary wanted. Would you address this situation, Jesus? Figure this out with my, with my sister and tell her, tell her what it is she's doing wrong so I could get some help. But, but what happens is, is something entirely different. Jesus turns his attention not to the content of Martha's request, but to the content of Martha's heart. 
the heart that was behind the request. Now what does what Martha said and how Martha was acting and Jesus' intuitive response say about Martha's heart? Because that's really uh, the main question that I think is at stake here. Where, where is Martha's heart? From, from what kind of heart is Martha asking Jesus to go and motivate Mary to help her? What is, what is it that is in her that has her focused in a direction that Jesus thinks needs correcting? Right? Because Martha is focused in a very specific direction, making preparations for the guests. And she's frustrated that Mary is not doing the same. And she expects Jesus to, to correct Mary's direction, where, where in fact he begins to correct Martha's intention. So what is it in Martha that Jesus sees needs correcting? That's, I think, one of the, one of the core questions um, of the text this morning. See, but here's the thing. It's kind of difficult sometimes for us to wrap our mind around this because there's nothing inherently wrong with what Martha is doing, is there? I mean, uh, you know, when you invite someone into your home, you want to take care of them. Um, most of us here, if we invited some, someone into our home, we would, we would offer them the most comfortable seat, right? And we say, is there anything that I can get you? Make yourself at home. Would you like a cup of coffee? How about something to eat? You know, you, you want to do everything that you can to prepare a comfortable and welcoming environment uh, for your guests. And that's today. That's not to say anything for the cultural differences between modern America and the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, where the role of hospitality was, uh, it was primary in holiness and righteousness, that when a guest came into your home, it was considered to be a safe place where they would be cared for and looked after and, and welcomed and fed and allowed to rest. And so the, the responsibility, the cultural obligation that was on Mary and Martha was huge. She went about trying to, to take care of her responsibility, but there was still something more that must have been going on in Martha's heart because Jesus wouldn't seek correction in Martha's life if she was doing what was needed and asked of her. Now, when I look at the story of Martha, when I look at the way that Jesus responded uh, to Martha and Mary's situation, <clears throat> you see almost like it seems like Martha belonged in 21st century modern Western civilization. Like, like she, it seems like she would have fit right in. Like she would, she was and is a, a byproduct of the way that our culture creates identity. You know what I mean is this. Like think of when you meet someone for the first time, 
okay? And you're, you're trying to get to know them. You're trying to, to create in your mind an understanding of who they are, of their identity. I mean, there's lots of questions that you could ask them in that, you know, first exchange. But what is almost universally one of the first things, besides maybe their name, that you ask a person when you're first getting to know, when you're first trying to understand who they are? What is it? What do you do for a living? Right? So, what do you do for a living? Now that in and of itself is a testament to how we begin to formulate a person's identity. Is it not? What do you do for a living? Maybe phrased in a different way, uh, like, what is it that you live to do? And so even subconsciously, like without even thinking of it, you and I put a marker on how we define a person's identity. It's, a, it's established based on what they do on a daily basis. Maybe the numbers they produce in their job, the, the, the accomplishments, the, um, the promotions that they've had. What, what is it that you do for a living? Tell me, uh, let me get an idea of who you are as a person by you telling me what it is you spend time doing. And it seems like this was even something that was embedded deep within the heart of Martha. I, I imagine um, that thoughts were running through her mind that afternoon as she was and trying to serve and minister to these, you know, presumably I would say the 12 disciples and Jesus himself, that she was only as good as what she could produce. As what she could do in that moment for her guests. Martha, Martha likely thought that, that Jesus' acceptance of her was based on what she could produce for him that day or in that moment. And, and how many of us have lived under the same weight of the same assumptions that Martha operated under? That, that God's love for us, that, that God's desire for us is based upon our performance in that moment. How good was I today? Well, you know, I kind of had a rough week spiritually. You know, I made some, I made some bad, some bad decisions. I there was a number of times where I, I gave into temptation or I lost my temper, and I just, I don't really feel like I can go to church this week because I, I know that based on how my week went that that God's kind of mad at me. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that he doesn't like me right now. Uh, in fact, I, he may not even love me. 
and we live uh, this way, and we, we, allow, we allow patterns like that to, to, to twirl around in our mind because so much of our interaction with the world around us is exactly like that. Everything, everything becomes performance-based, right? Very few jobs that people have are not performance-based, right? Well, I'm terrible at my job, but I just keep getting promotions, right? That's not the way the world works, right? And so we take what we already know is a worldly standard of do good, receive good, right? Good performance, good reward. We take that reality and we, we pick it up and we, we transplant it over to our spiritual lives and, and we begin to think of our relationship with God in the same way. Because, because if, we can, if we can take a model that we understand and, and kind of set it on top of something as grand and holy as our relationship with God, then what have we done? We've, we've put it in a, in a little space that we can control and, and understand, right? And get our, and get our minds um, wrapped around. And what we think is something that will help us in our relationship with God actually ends up enslaving us in this form of like self-inflicted, works-based, grace-emptying form of torture. We react to God on a performance-based scale thinking that it's about our performance that week or that day or whatever that either garners or shuns God's love for us. We see, while we, while we hate that model, we also willingly subject ourselves to it. Because at least in that model, we think we have control. Right? We think it, well, well, at least if I know that if I do good, then I will get rewarded, at least I am in control of whether or not I get rewarded. At least I'm in control of whether or not God loves me. All I have to do is be good, and then God loves me. Not a perfect system, but hey, at least I know it, right? At least I can play within the, within the boundaries, within the rules. And at the root of all of that is a desire for us to control. Right? We want to we control the terms under which God loves us. Ironically sinful, is it not? We want to be the driver in, the relation, in our relationship with God. And the fight comes. This is where the fight comes, Right? The fight comes when God tries to wrestle away control of our relationship with Him by telling us that there is no level of control that we can assert over our relationship with Him that will change the way that He feels towards us. God's love for us 
emanates from his nature, not from our accomplishments. God's love for us is not performance-based. God's love for us is based within the nature of his character, which is love. And it's passed on to us through his grace. See, the reality is, is that God loved you long before you had the capacity to accomplish anything. Long before you, you held even the physical characteristics of being able to do anything, you were an object of God's eternal affection. Let alone accomplishing anything for his kingdom, right? Just in your physical existence alone, God's love precedes everything in your life. And so outside of accomplishment, like a parent, right? I think the analogy is, a, is like minuscule in comparison, but it helps me to understand it. Like long before my child has the ability to do the laundry, right? Or wash the dishes, come Lord Jesus, please, you know? Right? Long before any of that, right? He has my affection. He has my love. And the same is with God. That his love is to us far before any ability that we have to accomplish anything or earn anything. God's love is carried to us through the vehicle of his grace. But that's really, it's not the only thing in play here. Um, now, I, I want to, let's look at, take a moment and look at uh, verse 40. And how, how Luke describes the, um, how, how Luke describes Martha. But Martha was what? Distracted. Well, we don't need to go any further. Um, now, we already tried to relate Martha to like the 21st century, you know, getting my identity through what I do um, rather than who God says I am type of thing. But like if there is a commentary on 21st century spirituality, it is the word that Luke describes Martha as distracted. It's not that what Martha was doing was unimportant. Not unimportant at all. In fact, very important. It's that what she was doing was not of utmost importance in that given situation. Because it's pretty clear uh, that what Martha was doing was what 
she thought was the most important thing to do in the moment. Like she wasn't being malicious, right? She wasn't just openly defying what she knew was the right thing to do, right? She earnestly thought that, that what she was, the work that she was going about doing was the right thing in that moment. Just look at the way that she speaks to Jesus, right? With, with the confidence of, I am in the right, Jesus. Look, look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, uh, there is like, what I want to do is point out the tremendous irony of what Martha says here. Okay, so pay attention. Verse 40. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. Now, what is so ironic about this is that Martha, in the same sentence, simultaneously recognizes Jesus as Lord, and then at the same time tries to assert her own personal agenda on the moment. Now, in, in the interest of being, like, super, super clear here, like, let's understand that Lord is not just another name for God, right? Like, God, Jesus, Yahweh, Jehovah, Savior, Lord, like, just in a, in a list of names that we have of God. Lord is not a proper name like Jehovah or Jesus, right? Lord is a title, if you think, um, even like in, in feudal times, right? You have, a, you have a lord over a manor, or over a kingdom, or over an area. And the lord of that kingdom is, like, has ultimate control, and, and ultimate say, and uh, is unchallenged in authority, and has no equals whatsoever. And so uh, the Christian community referred to Jesus as Lord in, in direct opposition to the Romans, right? Who would say, Caesar is Lord, right? And those who trusted in Jesus came behind the Romans and said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has no equal. Jesus alter Jesus is ultimate authority. And so so Mary Mary proclaims Lord and then just a, a few words later says Go tell my sister to do this. And how many times like like Martha in Luke chapter 10 do we find ourselves Proclaiming, Lord, 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 while, while simultaneously pursuing our own personal agendas. Now, now sometimes we do this in individual moments, like, like Martha did here in, in Luke uh, chapter 10. 
Uh, um, or, or like the priest and the Levite did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? They were on their own personal agenda and they were not going to be stopped with, a, with an invitation to show mercy to someone who was lying on the side of the road. But, uh, but, so, so it could be in a specific moment, but more often it's more of a kind of a general principle that we follow, that we, that we become so preoccupied and distracted by our own plans, our own goals, what we want to accomplish and what we think needs to be done, that we miss the moment where Jesus is standing right in front of us. Because we are so consumed with what it is that we want to get done that we miss the opportunity to sit at the very feet of the Master. And so it's not that having goals or having agendas or having direction is a bad thing in and of itself. It's when those things are not tempered by the lordship of Jesus Christ that they become instances like with Martha where, where our preoccupation needs to be rebuked. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The rebuke we encounter in Martha's life, happens when Jesus responds to her request in verse 41. Y'all heard that, right? That, that when we are preoccupied with an agenda that is ours and that does not belong to Jesus, that we put ourselves in a position to receive rebuke from the Lord. Now, I don't know what it would have been like to be on the rebuking side of Jesus. You could probably ask Peter. Ask Peter when you get, when you get to heaven. Um, or Martha. Right? I, um, I'd be willing to bet that, it, that Jesus was gentle and that in the perfectness of Jesus Love that Martha, although rebuked, understood it coming from the heart of compassion that the Lord had for her. But in the same way, to have the Lord say, Martha, you are distracted, worried, and wrong. Must have been like, all right, Cut to the chase about what's wrong here, Jesus. Like, right to the heart. The exact words that Jesus says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, notice here, that Jesus doesn't address the action of Mary. He addresses the heart of Martha. Martha wanted Jesus to correct Mary. 
But what Jesus actually ended up doing was seeking to direct the heart that asked the question to begin with. And what was the heart issue that Jesus singled out in Mary's life that needed to be addressed? Now, you have, many of you might have different translations than I do. Um, I read out of the, I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. The heart issue for Mary was worry. You ever been worried before? You ever, you ever stew over something? You ever, you, you ever let anxiety like boil and bubble up until it's next to pouring out into your life? Like so much so, it's not just something they're like, oh yeah, I should probably get the oil changed this week, yeah. No, that's not worrying, right? No, 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 worrying is a, is a preoccupation of the mind that consumes the thoughts and then directs the action. So you, you respond in life to the worry that you've let consume your mind. Did you know that worry is sinful? Yeah. Like, like worry is not just a, oh man, yeah, you know, I just worry all the time. Like, oh, it's okay, everyone worries. No. It's not okay. And far from it being okay, right? God doesn't want your mind preoccupied with the things that aren't happening or might happen or could happen, right? So much so that like Martha, you're distracted from being able to recognize that Jesus is right there with you. Worry isn't just some character flaw that we have to deal with. Worry is sin that we need to repent of. Because it keeps us under heavy bondage of walking with Jesus. Because our mind is so preoccupied. Right? You know, like, you know who is probably worried? Peter. When, when Jesus says to him, hey, just, just step. Come, come, out, come out onto the water with me. Would you be worried? Hello? Right? Would you be worried? And, and what does the scripture say? That as Peter looked at Jesus, he walked on the water. Right? And then, what does the gospel say? That as soon as Peter saw the wave 
and the wind and the rain. And as soon as his focus was taken off of Jesus, and his mind was preoccupied with the forces that were against him, he began to sink. And as we become preoccupied with this, and that worry boils and bubbles up and it begins to spill over, and then we begin to respond and walk in life, not out of, not out of the confidence through which God has called us to walk, but out of fear and out of reaction and out of uh, uh, trying, to, trying, to, trying to mitigate consequences by doing X or doing Y. Like, listen, the antidote to worry is not to just try really hard to worry less. The antidote to worry is to repent of its sinfulness and allow God to break the chains of bondage that worry has on your life. But that's just the first step, right? Second step is to, is to begin to recognize that, that once the power of sin is broken, right? That it, it doesn't mean that, that temptation to continue to worry doesn't come knocking at your door, right? It just means that it no longer has power over you, right? The chains of, the chains of sin have been broken in repentance, right? But, but now what happens when I begin to worry again, right? Do you believe the scripture has an answer for you? I believe it does. Right? I believe that, that, the, that the whole counsel of Scripture is like, it's, it's going to teach us how to be holy, right? So, like, let's look at Philippians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Do not be anxious, right? And, and the word here, anxious, in, in Greek, in the original language, is the same word that Jesus uses for worry over in Luke chapter 10, all right? So, yeah, funny, funny how that works, right? Um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that as I've, I've repented from my worry, right, but as I begin to worry again, right, the scripture reminds me through God's grace, 
and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm reminded of the truth that, Lord, that, that when I am anxious or when I am worried, right, I, I come and I lay that worry at the altar in prayer. I say, Lord, I don't want this. This is, this is not of you. I am not going to carry this around. I am, I am giving it to you. And with thanksgiving, Lord, I'm saying thank you that your peace which passes and transcends all common understanding, will come and it will guard my heart and it will guard my mind against the sin of worry. But Lord, don't stop there, right? Because I know, left to my own devices, I'm just going to ruminate and chew on that thing that's worrying, Lord. So, Father, verse 8, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So Lord, replace that which is causing me worry and anxiety, let my mind focus and fixate and be preoccupied with the things that are true, the things that are noble, the things that are right and pure and lovely and admirable, all of those things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Lord, make that the content of my thought so that in my thinking I might not sin against you again. And we have talked a lot about Mary here, right? Or about Martha. But let's not forget about Mary. Because what, what happens with Mary is that, that Mary holds, um, holds the promise for us. That as we become preoccupied, free of distractions, right? as we allow ourselves to be preoccupied on the Lord. What is it that happens is that we, we get a front row seat to God's most powerful glory. Who was the first one to see Jesus when he walked out of the grave? Was it Peter? Was it James or John? Was it, who was it? It was Mary. Mary, the first one, the front row seat to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Because her, what she was consumed with, right? Her preoccupation was communion with Jesus Christ. It paid off in a big way for her. Now, I'm going to go down the stairs because I'm the guy that would blow out his knee jumping off the stage in church. <clears throat> we talk, our communion with Jesus Christ is not just, is not 
not complete um, in the sense of just hearing his word or singing praises to him. It's not complete this morning. Um, our communion with Jesus Christ resides in our remembering the sacrifice that he made for us. And um, we take symbols like bread and a cup. And they help to remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he taught his disciples in the, same, in the very same way. By, by taking a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the bread. And then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat of this, all of you. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then likewise, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup and then he gave the cup to his disciples, saying, Take and drink from this cup, all of you. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when you come forward to receive of the broken body of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you come forward not taking it of yourselves. You can only take it because it's been given to you. You can only take it because it's been offered for you. Offered without cause and in the fullness of his love and grace. All who would come can receive it. Because before you even knew of your need for the broken body and the shed blood, it happened. And so as you come forward in faith, come forward as one receiving the gift of Jesus Christ that God gives to you. And as Jesus was broken and poured out, prepare yourselves as ones who will also be broken and also be poured out for those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can come forward to the center aisle, uh, take of communion, return on the outside.